All right, what are we? What are you making? I am. Uh, I'm making a hotel old fashioned uh, with some blackjack, which is uh, going to be interesting because that's a piece of shit whiskey. But uh, we're going to do it. So basically, I I always do my old fashions with the inside of an orange, so a half peel, and then the the round inside, and then a little bit of sugar, and then two or three dashes of bitters, and then. I mash that at the bottom of the glass, and I'll pour the whiskey over that, and then usually roll it with some ice, and then top it with some soda, and then an orange peel. Um, could add a little bit of uh, cherry juice, but we don't have any cherries, so fuck it. Do you want more? No. No. <laughs> I mean... Because I'm not you, doing this again, so once we mix it, we're yeah. mixing it. No, no, you've told me for two days what a crap-ass whiskey this is, so I'm I'm fully prepared to go light. To be clear, you picked this off the shelf. This I shelf. pointed it out and told yeah. you what it was, and you were yeah. like, yeah, we're going to fucking do it. <laughs> that is actually what my voice sounds like <laughs> when I'm off mic. Yeah, we're going to fucking do it. <laughs> Nathan oh. just turned into a frat bro right <laughs> right away. Let's do it, bro. You are the, the host of a drinking podcast, so... That is true. That's fair. Let me interrupt this Iraq happy hour with a quick but important rule of doing journalism overseas. Something the legendary correspondent wrangler Howard Chua Earn taught me early in my time at Time Magazine. The rule? Know who you're going in with. That could be a well-connected contact, a wary and smart fellow journalist, an expensive but worth it fixer. These are the kind of people who will make your reporting better, more truthful, and safer. For me, for Iraq, Genghis Yar is the person I'm going in with. I've worked with Genghis for years. He was most recently the managing editor at Roads and Kingdoms, but he's also put a lot of time in this country. From Kirkuk to Mosul to Baghdad, but especially here in Erbil, in Kurdistan, in Iraq's north. So when we started talking about bringing the Trip podcast to Iraq, there was no question I would go when Genghis was there, and I wanted him on the show. He is, to me, the platonic ideal of what a photojournalist should be. Compassionate, intelligent, he's got a great eye, but he's not in love with the aesthetics of the work. He's brave without being stupid, and he makes a very, very good drinking partner. Over the next four weeks, this show is going to be in Iraq. Why here? It's not known for its uh, drinking culture, especially. Definitely not during Ramadan, which is when I was there. But I had lots of reasons for coming here. One, I actually like tea, and the Kurds are tea fiends. Two, I knew I would find some very intense, very funny, very smart people to talk to here. Three, I like boiled cheap, and you can't get that just anywhere. And four, I think every American should come to Iraq. It's like when your dog pees on the floor and you actually have to show the spot to the dog when you're scolding it. Otherwise, they just forget or they don't even understand what they fucked up in the first place. We Americans have been peeing all over the world for most of my adult life, and somehow our government wants to add to it with Iran, just a little over 100 miles from where I've recorded these episodes. Forget Spring Break Daytona, or backpacking through Europe, the real travel experience for Americans should be to go see those places that we lit on fire. It should be like a mandatory aliyah for any would-be neocons. Come visit. Stay in a marginal hotel like my $30 a night hotel for Reek. Drink and talk with locals. 
and really start to understand how little you actually know the place and yet how much you're starting to like it. It would take all the fun out of nation building and foreign policy floor peeing. Just saying. I am Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, this is The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Got some old fashions. You said you make the best old fashions. Yeah, you, you said that. This is a really good old fashioned. I have to say, the best is that is that like a Erbil wide or a Kurdistan wide or Middle East conflict journalist wide? Like, who are you beating in this best old fashioned? Well, I would say I definitely make the best old fashioned in Kurdistan that I've ever had, and among among my friend group. I don't know another journalist that has. Uh, Hung out in my circles, I guess, that mixed cocktails for their friends after uh, after a day of, of war reporting. But I'd say, like, this old-fashioned is what I learned to make in Chicago, busting my ass behind a bar, and routinely got told this was the best old-fashioned that people had. So based on, like, John and Jim and Susie's recommendation in a bar in Chicago, this is the best old-fashioned, um, which I've taken with me. So Right. So little, little did the foreign correspondent press corps know... And the Iraqi fixers and local journalists, they didn't know what was coming. No. When you came from Chicago to come cover the conflict uh, in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere, but you were bringing a really strong old-fashioned game. A really strong old-fashioned game, but also a really strong margarita game, hmm. which was a hit. Oh, yeah? Yeah. that was uh, The margaritas uh, really, really set the, set the tone for um, what, what cocktails could be. I had requests um, on, on a pre, pretty frequent basis for cocktail nights, which were mainly just margarita nights, and I would often cook burgers as well. Okay. So Jesus, through, so you were bringing the whole the full Buffett. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> the I full host, Jimmy Buffett. To I like to Iraq. host. I love to host. So yeah. having people over and cooking and um, socializing was was a lot of fun. You know, it's funny because like these are delightful skills, and we're kind of joking around about them, but it's just always amazing to me. You know, we bitch a lot about journalists and people who are rude and, you know, just untoward and, and set a bad reputation for themselves. It still happens. It's kind of shocking to me because it is such a small community. And I feel like we're on the verge of some really great advice for, for the kids out there. <laughs> it's just like take care of, you know, be, be good. Like be the guy who makes a drink for somebody. At you the know, end of just, the day. just take care of your people. Yeah. And like, don't be a fucking asshole. That's the core uh, for for traveling internationally. That's the core for reporting internationally. That's the core for walking down your fucking street. <laughs> like right. these are not these are not specific journalism skills. Like you just have to be a good person. Yeah, and like you'll make it. I mean, you say walking down the street, but um, by the way, this old fashioned is really delicious. I know. Um, I'm about halfway through already, and it's refreshing and fantastic. You can make yourself another one. That, I, was, a, that was a lot of work with that butter. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I'm going to let you continue to take care of me here in Iraq. Uh, or we'll just move to straight blackjack. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's like there is something that is particular to journalism, which is in, you know, this is a small community. I mean, just straight up. Like there's even with people cycling through, even with, you know, the kind of the, the more transient nature. How many foreign journalists have come through in your years uh, in Kurdistan would have been 30 40 no you know? no no like way way more than that oh yeah um, well I, I mean especially through the battle for Mosul like you had 
TV crews coming through and, you know, every reporter who wanted to do international war reporting came through. So it was, it was actually a lot. Well, TV is different. Those guys are dicks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, fuck TV. Um, <laughs> That's it. In general. Yeah. We're, we're, but yeah. also, also TV journalism. Like we're, we're print guys. <laughs> Here I am talking about being nice to everybody. I'm like, <laughs> fuck those guys. Um, um, but yeah, like there were lots of people that that came through here, but enough where this the circle is still is still really small. So talking like a couple hundred people, yeah. and you know under under a hundred that stayed for a long duration, and then like under fifty who were here for most of the fighting, and then way way fewer that have stayed for you know a year or or plus, um, and then a really small amount that have you know made this their home. Yeah, well, uh, I, as far as like international reporters go, I, I you know as we were talking about. While you were making the drinks, there there is a a, a light urine scent in this uh, in this hotel room. Just reminds me of that expression: "Don't shit the bed." You know, like you are in a very small group, relatively, whether it's you know a few dozen or a couple hundred even of people who will talk about you and will know how you treat people and how you treat yourself, and and it's you know the kind of bad behavior that we've seen time and again is 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 very strange, and it's one of the things that always attracted me to you as a person and the work that you did was it wasn't just the photography, but it was a sense it's like everybody loves Jengus. Well, I'm, I'm totally not sure about that. I would, I could probably guess that there's people that talk shit about me on a regular basis, but I, I think I've tried my best to Let take care, out. take care of a lot of people and just be good. I don't think you need to put that much effort into life just to look out for others. And I don't know, that's been my, I don't know, my mantra here more or less is just try to establish a sense of community and a home for the people that did work here, for the journalists and fixers and anybody else we, you know, interacted with. It was just, let's establish like a sense of community and a sense of home and um, and create some base that we're, we can all take care of each other. Because especially in the freelance community, there's, there's no one looking out for you. There's not a single person that's going to like have your back if you're doing this on your own. So we needed that. Like we needed some sort of stability. And um, I hope that I was able to provide that for a few people in the very least. And, you know, if that was running to a hospital to check on some kid I've never heard of, um, I did that, you know. And if it was running to a hospital to check on my friend, like I did that. And like that's what it, that's, I don't know, I wanted other people to do that too. And um, kind of like instill that that mantra in in the community that we have here. Stepping away from Iraq uh, felt like I was losing a lot of that too, because I was stepping away from that community that I had built for myself and, you know, my friends built around me. That kind of sucked. Leaving a friend group that was so close because of that that sense of needing to be there for one another um, in case shit went down. Yeah. Yeah. That's not something that, that uh, you get to experience a lot in civilian life in the States, no matter how uh, mission driven. So, well, let's let's get into that, man. How how did you get from where you started to um, to where we are now, Erbil, for as long as you were here? I was doing I was doing a big project on Syrian refugees in 2014. So my my idea was to create a portraiture of Syrian refugees that gave um, gave a more just like personal and sensitive uh, look at at kids. So what, what does a Syrian refugee kid look like? What do they think? What do they want? What do they, uh, what do they like doing? And, uh, and just like, who are they? And present that to an American audience in, in, in the hopes of trying to convince them that 
uh, these people matter and Syrian refugees matter and they shouldn't be looked at like however American audiences look at Syrian refugees. And why why kids? I mean, you, you don't have children. You At that point, we're in your 20s. It's like the valley in terms of kid connectivity for most people. Like, why did you decide that those would be the subjects of, of this like huge project that you're going to take on? Well, I mean, personally, I, I don't know. I, I love children. I love the innocence of 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 children everywhere um and just i always personally connect and like relate to to kids in a a very you know emotional way and i wanted to try to communicate that sympathy i felt for syrian refugees and and try to pull that out of an american audience and i thought if if i can present them as i see them um maybe that would connect with somebody else so doing that through polaroids which is what the whole project was based around was you know Polaroid camera, instant photography, and and trying to make an you know everybody knows what a Polaroid looks like beyond just the fact that it's like an original like you can't ever replicate a Polaroid just like you can't ever replicate a child. Everybody knows what a Polaroid looks like, and it's like it's relatable to a wide a wide American audience. And just to use that as the medium to try to try to make a connection um, was the general idea. So the whole project was, you know, all four countries that surrounded Syria, which also had the largest Syrian refugee populations. So that was Turkey, Iraq, Jordan, and Lebanon. And I would go to those countries and I would talk to children and their families and and just present them in a not political way. Just like, who are these people? Like, who are these kids? And, you know, what's their favorite color? What's their favorite food? And and try to bring that back and and make a connection. And that's the first time I came uh, came to Kurdistan and uh, experienced Iraq. But you you hadn't worked at all in the Middle East before. No, I had. Um, so I I came here in 2012, not to Iraq. I came to the Middle East in 2012 um, and did Syria. Um, so gotcha. first experience in the Middle East was 2012 uh, into Aleppo with the Free Syrian Army. Um, and that was a more conventional like just straight up foreign correspondent I'm going in with the combatants and we'll try to shoot near the action yeah that was much more straightforward like let's you know do straight up journals like straight up photojournalism um, and try to communicate that and I mean I did I did a weird project there too uh, where I photographed young uh, Syrian fighters um, you know 17 18 19 year old guys and asked them you know why they're fighting and you know who are you why are you fighting how old are you like where are you from what did you do before this and just those normal questions that i think correspondents kind of miss you know that's not a news peg no one's like oh like who are these people like but like i what did they study well yeah and right. like but i think that's important like, right i think it's important like what ahmed studied and like why he picked up a gun and you know what happened to his family and and try to present that in a portraiture series um so that was like Outside of the straight photojournalism, that was one of the first projects I did in the Middle East, and you know it was terrible. It was it was really shitty. Like I, I wasn't a good photographer in 2012, and I've grown a lot since then. But that was my first attempt um, working in the region. And then in 2014, try to like expand on that with like a a, a child a child push. Um, guys with guns don't relate really well to well maybe they do, but. I mean, almost too well sometimes, well, like right? Middle Eastern guy holding a gun and yeah. like trying to make that person relatable is like a little, little harder than a, a kid on a swing set, more or less. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's that, that, that classic conflict that we have in journalism where it's like, 
people understand that image of a Middle Eastern guy with a gun in a way that's probably not what you want to have happen, you know, or that that is useful to the conversation at all because they're just going to be like, oh, well, this is a place where everybody's always just shot at each other, you know, which is actually very far from the truth. And one of the things that even now, however many years, Jesus Christ, we're like, you know, 15 years after the invasion of Iraq, there multiple Iraqis have felt it necessary to remind me that Iraq is a rich and educated country. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like they have a self-image that they know from, you know, long and hard experience is not the image that is presented in the West, in the places where decisions are being made about their lives, right? They're like, listen, we we have other dreams besides, you know, defeating ISIS. <laughs> like, that's not the plan. Like, the plan is something beyond that. So it's kind of that, you know, I don't recall having seen your pictures from 2012 in that project. I'll take your word that they were shitty pictures, but that that instinct of trying to push through some of those prejudices or those stereotypes about who these people are and why they're fighting and, you know, how inevitable it was that they'd be fighting. Those are great instincts. I don't, I don't know why it is, but I think probably it has something to do with the fact that like, I didn't go to journalism school. I never set out to be like some foreign correspondent. Like I somehow down my roads of traveling, like started wanting to tell, tell stories and, and tell stories with pictures and trying to figure out a way to to make people relatable and and to make people care about the world around them and i thought one of the ways to do that was by just presenting people as they are which i wasn't seeing anywhere else you know i i grew up on a diet of fox news like and um that was my whole idea growing up of what journalism was and when i started taking pictures of other people and being able to share their stories to a to an audience back home like the most obvious thing to me was just like present them as they are present people as i would present my brother to someone else or i was i would hope like they would some other person some foreigner in my country would present my family to their their audience and i don't know i, I always carried that with me yeah that's i mean it's funny my son who's in fifth grade now had just um they'd had some kind of section in their class about journalism where there was a curriculum based around like, what is journalism? And, and, you know, he kind of ran me through a couple of things they were telling me. He's like, does that sound right? And, you know, I immediately became like kind of crotchety old newsman. It was like, you don't need rules. Like, all you need is a pen and a conscience, you know? Like, that's what journalism is. And, you know, he's kind of like, but, but <laughs> it had nothing to do with the question he had actually asked me. But I'll say that like a thousand times, too. It's like you don't need that education. You just need to have the mentality of trying to tell people stories in a compassionate way. And then, you know, being smart enough, emotionally smart enough to sort of figure out like, you know, like what the power dynamic is and and how how people back home are going to receive this and how you can fight, you know, this unending struggle that we all have against compassion fatigue and stereotyping. Um, Yeah, so fuck, you know, higher education and journalism like unless you you know badly need a structure for your career change there's nothing that they can teach you that you wouldn't know as a human who can go out and experience and make mistakes and just try to be better at telling those stories yeah Um, i mean i i I can't say like i told everybody's story to the fullest extent that like i don't just i i didn't do a good job with everybody's story and uh 
and that upsets me. Like, I, I, I do wish I had some sort of formal education earlier on in my career. It, it might have helped, <laughs> but it definitely might not have helped. I mean, I've seen a lot of people with formal education who just make weird and bad decisions um, because they're weird and bad people. <laughs> like, you just can't, you yeah. can't educate or, like, degree yourself away from that. I wanted to ask you also something. I mean, you... You're unusual in the sense, I mean, you described your upbringing like you were, you know, born and raised in New Jersey. Well, you weren't born in New Jersey, but you were raised in New Jersey. Right? I was born in, you born were, in Jersey. Jesus yeah. Christ. This is more serious than I thought. Yeah, I know. I've got all of that baggage with me, which uh, I've carried around for my entire life. You raised on a diet of Fox News, as you said. Um, you have your father's name. I do. Uh, you were a junior. Your name is like, you know, baroquely, you know, kind of ornately Turkish. Um, it's Jagus it Yar, uh, Junior. Junior. I'm sure that you've had to deal with that in America in different ways your entire life. Um, but now you've come to a region where Turkishness, like Turkish identity, is is and certainly Turkish politics and military power is like a huge player in the daily lives of all of these stories that you're telling. Um, I find it kind of fascinating that you ended up here i mean is that part of the gravitational pull yeah i mean i i I don't know there's like a weird thing in me where it it feels right being in the middle east um and i don't i don't know how to explain that but the first time i landed in turkey it was it was strange like seeing my name on buildings and no everybody else looked like me like i grew up in a super super white neighborhood in jersey like super white um like part of the country where my friends all had pickup trucks with shotguns like it was it was not the jersey most people think of it was rural rural fucking jersey and i was the only kid in eighth grade who had hair on his arms and was way darker than every other kid in my class and i wouldn't say that was something i realized when i was in the eighth grade but it was it was definitely something that played a factor in like oh like Everybody else here doesn't really look like me. I wouldn't say they like picked on me any more than anybody else, like because in eighth grade, like everybody kind of gets picked on. But yeah. no, you make that subconscious like check mark where you're like, oh, I'm a little bit different than everybody. And then like landing in Turkey, it was like, oh fuck, I look like everybody else in this country, and like everybody recognizes my name. And this is like really weird. Where like I'll go to a truck stop and there's like, you know, all the coffee cups and my name's on the coffee cup. Whereas like. <laughs> Driving through Illinois, my name's not on any fucking coffee cup. Um, <laughs> that is true. I'm not saying that, like that, you know, that's a, a a calculation in like being in the Middle East, but maybe it was, maybe it is, and I think like I feel a little bit relatable to uh, to just like identity here and like who I am as a person and where my father came from and you know what it means to be a Turkish American and yeah, like just on a name basis, like everybody knows a Genghis. Like everybody knows what how to how to pronounce it. Everyone knows like what it looks like, and um, everybody claims it as their own too. So it's like the Kurds will claim Genghis, like the Syrian Kurds will claim Genghis, Syrians will claim it, like Turks claim it, and they're like, oh no, your your father must have been mistaken. He was probably a Kurd. Like, well, <laughs> pretty sure, pretty, pretty sure. sure he was Turkish. But um, and I'll, then like, I'll take it, yeah. Like, Arabs will say I look Arab, and you know, there's just, like, this weird mixed identity with, like, my mixed heritage in the States that translates to me fitting in in communities here really easily. I think as a photographer, um, maybe maybe my looks do help a little bit because I'm able to blend in. That, like, 
you know, that challenge of photographers just being able to seep away into the background, that like cliche of like being a fly on the wall, which, um, which, you know, I, I do try to be, uh, very often It's just like be present, be there, but not be noticed, not standing out fucking helps with that. And, you know, not being, um, a very different looking person, uh, in a situation, uh, really does help with that. And, you know, I, I think I work around that, uh, in different ways when I'm working in areas where I don't look like everybody. And I know photographers here that don't look like everybody here that work around that too. But I think I've been at some advantage in some situations where I, I just, no one notices me because I look like just everybody else. So you're working on serious children, uh, yep. as a project, which was this four nation look at how the children of, you know, who were affected by the war, uh, saw themselves and, and through Polaroids. Um, how did that get you up here and why did you stay, um, in, in Northern Iraq? Well, so in 2014, Iraq had a Syrian refugee population of like almost 320,000 people. Uh, and those were mainly Syrian Kurds who were fleeing, uh, the fighting and the economic disparity that the fighting was causing and just uh, were more or less like most of them were economic refugees, but they were living in camps around around uh, around Kurdish held Iraq. And part of my goal was to stop and meet them and use the project to tell their stories. Um, and, and that's what I did. So I took a bus from Diyarbakir across the across the border and got into Erbil at like one o'clock at night and had some local connections and, you know, started, started the project here. And I'd never been to Iraq before. I'd never been to Kurdistan before and didn't know much about the country besides what I had seen on the news and growing up. And, um, I thought I should be afraid, you know, just as an American, most of the perception about Iraq is just to be afraid. Um, fear Kurds as well, right? Like, I, you know, I'd read about Kurds and I, I've heard about them from friends and I never met a Kurd before. And, you know, quickly upon uh, upon being in, in the region uh, for, you know, a couple of days, it was almost it's like my mind was almost blown. It was like, oh, this is, this is what Iraq is and this is what Kurdistan is and separate from Iraq. And the, all of these like weird things that I never thought about, um, kind of were just like opening my eyes for me. Um, and there weren't that many people here and everybody I met was really friendly. And it was like, you know, this, this place is super interesting and I want to learn more about it. And I want to, I want to keep photographing it and I want to, I want to come back here. So I left and I finished the project, went to Jordan and then Lebanon and then went home. And it was kind of like always in my mind, like, I, I really want to come back to Kurdistan. Like, I really want to experience more of the country and learn more about it and learn more about Iraq through it. And it seems like an easy place to be because you can just land with American American passport and live safely. And there were people here I knew by that point. So I tried over the next uh, over the next year. It was just like, I'm going to figure out a way to get back there. And at some point I made the, the calculation. I was like, I'm going to do that. And I don't know when that was, but it was like, ever since I got back to the States, it was like kind of nagging at me. Yeah. And then at some point I just decided that's what I was going to do. And then I moved back or I moved, I moved here in 2015. So a year later. What's Kurdistan versus Iraq and, and why is it different? And, and what is it like being here? Yeah. I mean, Kurdistan is, uh, the North, it's more or less the North of Iraq and it's where the, you know, the Kurds call home. It was a protected region um, 
uh, starting in 1991. This um, is the no-fly zone that yeah. Americans would have heard of. Exactly. It's basically U.S. Uh, air superiority used to enforce because Saddam was up here just like slaughtering Kurds wholesale. Yeah, exactly. So Kurds are Muslim. Uh, most Kurds. Most Muslim. Kurds. We, yep. we saw it today. We saw but some Kurds. Kurds are also Christians. spread over, yeah. over four countries. So there's Kurdish populations in Iraq, Iran, Turkey and Syria. So it's and really they're split by borders. Yeah, it's an ethnic minority in all of those countries and Iraq has had a, you know People often call them the the largest ethnic minority without a home. Um, I think that's disputed. Um, it's kind of the the classic saying as long as well as with like Kurds have no friends but the mountains. Um, people also claim that the largest minority without a home. So like right. there is no Kurdish state. Kurdistan in northern Iraq is the closest thing that they've been to having a state, and it's still not a state. It's a uh, autonomous region within Iraq. So um, you know you have three main cities. There's Dahuk, Erbil, where we are, and there's Soleimaniya. Um, and you know that is the area of, of the world where the Kurds have the most control over themselves and their politics and and who governs them. Um, and Kurds in Syria are slowly getting a little bit more control um, through the civil war there and with the fight against ISIS, but it kind of remains to be seen what's going to happen next. And Kurds in, in Turkey don't have uh, really any control over, over their future with um, the, the fighting between the PKK and the, and the Kurdish government, or yeah, the they, Turkish government, sorry. They've got a, a boot on their neck. But it, it's, it is one of the things that makes this area beguiling, at least to me, you know, from afar, is that this is a laboratory for what Kurdish autonomy could look like. Because you're right, as you were saying, it's easy to come to and easy to transit, you know, in and out of because they control their own borders um, apart from the Iraqi state. So you can come in, specifically me, I, I could come in this week with an American passport, yep. just get a stamp at the airport when I arrive. If I came into Baghdad, it would be a much different story. Like there's, So there's this weird sense of that, that they are part of Iraq, but definitely much more open for business than the rest of Iraq and and just just different. I mean, but they're they're. I mean, they also try to separate from Iraq. They want to be different from Iraq. They want to be their own country. And they had a referendum in 2017, right after the battle uh, against ISIS finished along their borders, um, where they tried to separate and it failed massively. So they, they lost a bunch of territory that they were fighting over with Baghdad. Well, the um, referendum won. Yeah. Well, so yeah, the, they so, voted yes. Yeah, exactly. And Baghdad said, "Oh no, <laughs> right." Yeah, and then um, so and, and took their richest city. Yeah, and they took uh, they took Kirk, which wasn't tr- like wasn't previously um, you know controlled by the Kurds. They, there's a large Kurdish population there, but the Kurds uh, were able to take it when the Iraqi army ran away from ISIS in 2014. So they seized control of Kirkuk and held it um, until they held had the referendum, and then at that point Baghdad was like, oh, we want. Want that oil-rich city back? Yeah, yeah. And then they got it back. So uh, there was like this big, more or less bluster. If you look, um, if you look at like, the past few years by the Kurdish government here, um, they lost a lot of territory. They lost a lot of support by by Kurds that you know wanted and hoped for a free a free country of their own um, through the referendum and through the lack of support from the international community for a Kurdish state of their own. Yeah, we've seen this so many times, I think, with with smaller countries, smaller ethnic groups. We were talking a lot today about Georgia, you know, a country that imagined that they had the international community at their back and a kind of a a claim to autonomy regionally that was undeniable. And then, you know, the the might of their 
their larger neighbor just comes in and kind of crushes dreams. I mean, this is, um, and it's an interesting moment in Kurdistan because that's kind of, you know, we're living in the aftermath of that, right? Where they had said, we want to be free. And then they just got routed and you're left in this thing. It was like, well, okay, well, how, how free can we be? Like, how Kurdish can we be? And it plays out, it's so fascinating, right? It plays out in all these different moments from, you know, like a bar that will accept different ethnic groups or not to, you know, just how people navigate, uh, you know, religious differences and like who's got the power. And, and, and generally you see people trying in a, in a way that seems like very thoughtful to, to negotiate those things. And, and the, the atmosphere is very peaceful, but it's in a context that's, that's got to be very difficult for courage right now. There's like all these like weird, you know, complications between Kurdish identity and and nationality and, you know, hopes for the future and mixed in with like what it's what it is to be an Iraqi and all of these th- different things that are playing factors into, you know, emotions of the general public here, as well as like the corruption and the infighting between the parties and the massive wealth disparity between the poor and like the average Kurd and uh, and like political and government officials and you know fucking ferraris driving down the street and there's a lot of resentment uh in in that but then also you just had a referendum where the majority of the population voted to pull away from iraq and that was like the first time where you know average kurds before that referendum i was talking to were like super excited like we're gonna do it we're gonna get our state and they had a lot of faith in in the government to be able to pull that off and to pull, be able to pull away from Iraq. And all of that faith just like kind of blew up. And like immediately after, it was just kind of like devastating. Their government was unable to do it. Baghdad responded really strongly. And, you know, what's it like to lose faith in this belief that you can have your own country when, you know, you really believe like you could? It's just like really sad in in many ways, and uh, lots of people I talked to were just like absolutely crushed. It's like, what is it now? Like, what is it like now to be a Kurd? And like, wonder if you're able to ever able to get like ever able to have a, a state. And most people I talked to just don't think it's a it's going to happen. Right, because it wasn't just like it's not like an ethno nationalist dream, but it's also they had done such a good job of removing themselves and being aloof from the severe crises that were happening in the rest of Iraq, right? So they were building their economy, they were developing, they were really connected to the international community while the rest of Iraq was just a, on fire. Yeah, and overnight um, Baghdad was like, yeah, okay, cool, we're going to shut your air airspace down, we're going to close your northern border, you're cut off, like, and we're going to take back all this land. And, and just like the power that Baghdad asserted and was like able to prove that they still had um, just was was so so dominant. Like they were just able to do so much, um, way more than like I think most Kurds were expecting. Right. They because they had been the model region, I guess, mm-hmm. for for a long time after the invasion. How do you exist here as a journalist in trying to kind of keep up with that story? Because you know, as with every journalist, you have kind of a dual purpose of trying to make a living, right? Uh, particularly in those years when you were freelancing and, and, and living here in Erbil, and then also trying to tell deeper stories that, that are your, your own personal interest. Like, how do you take a camera and just go out in the street and say, like, I want to capture this, this moment in Kurdistan? I, I wouldn't even really know where to begin. 
Yeah, I don't. I I don't think I I I do at the moment. <laughs> I don't think I ever have. Um, but I think a lot of um, you know documenting a situation or documenting a group of people is just being there and being present and you know waiting for waiting for things to happen in front of you and just having your camera ready. And, um, you know, so being here for certain moments, um, I think are really important just to show the progression and show what happens over time. Um, and I think like just going out one day, which is the problem with like journalism is like go out one day and tell this whole story in four hours and then file by five o'clock. Like you can't tell the whole story of what's going on for anybody in that amount of time let alone like a country or a region or a war. And the the beauty about like long-term things and being able to stay somewhere for a long time is like you're able to to tell a deep story about what's going on here. And I don't think I don't think I've done that with Kurdistan. I, I don't think I've done that with the war against ISIS, but I'm trying to and I'm going to keep trying to. And like hopefully in like 10 years like I can look back and present this work to people that also lived through this. I'm just like, you know, is this accurate? Does this, you know, does this really show like what, what you experienced and what happened here? And I mean, I think for anybody who does this type of work, like that's the goal is, did I document this part of our entire existence to the fullest extent I could? There's, there's something that's very steady and this is true for local journalists as well as foreign journalists. I think it's like, it's very steady about, the mission of journalism to kind of go into a place where chaos reigns because, you know, we have been walking around the Citadel and the Central Plaza and people are taking selfies and they're memorializing a beautiful sunset on the first day of Ramadan. Like, they will have a record of these days, which are really good days. And their very worst days, they don't have a record of. They're just trying to survive. They're trying to get their shit. They're trying to find out where they can be safe they're you know in in absolute panic mode and there there is this thing of journalists like we'll go in and like from the outside from from some people's perspectives it can seem a little ghoulish or something but it's really to to be the memory of these events as they happen because these events will be politicized they will the facts will be disputed that the dates the locations the the emotions, the reasons will all come under fire, but the the photos are not going to lie, right? You were there. You saw it. Well, I mean, I think that raises the question is like, is there a point for journalism, especially with, you know, everybody having a cell phone now and everybody recording almost everything they do? I mean, you saw it walking around today, like just everybody's recording almost everything they do. And I think uh, journalism's at a point right now where we're all questioning, like, what is the point of us being here? And what is the point of me sticking my lens in some some mother as she cries? Like, am I really adding anything to this Um, when everybody else is also recording? And I think those are all questions, like, I ask myself, and I know my colleagues ask ask themselves uh, quite often. The digital age has really changed, I think, what it means to be a journalist. You're not the only one who's you know, shutter is open. I mean, at any given moment, I, I think that's probably true. But, you know, if you go back to the very first episode of this podcast, you will hear that Mother Ayahuasca had said that it was very appropriate for journalists like myself earlier and like you these days to go and talk to people who had just lost someone and <laughs> given like full permission to tell those stories. Yeah, because 
that was the that's the main question that I always have too. It's like how weird is it to go into a conflict uh, situation or a situation of grief and and kind of start poking around, you know, dispassionately. So tell me tell me about Mosul and and how you got involved in covering the 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 battle to to liberate Mosul. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to sum that up really. So Mosul was held by ISIS since they rampaged across the recent region in 2014. So at that moment, like the city was on lockdown and you couldn't access it. And uh, in 2016, Iraqi forces started moving on Mosul. So I started living here in 2015. And uh, in early 2016, there were like villages on the outskirts of Mosul that were being attacked by the Iraqi army. So I, you know, embedded with them and I covered refugee IDP um, fleeing, like people, I covered people fleeing from those areas. And that was like the buildup to Mosul. Um, so from I think it was March 2016 until the actual assault on the city started, which was um, October of 2000, uh, 2016. And uh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I tried to cover it the best I could. And starting with the Peshmerga on the outskirts of the city in, in, that, uh, in that first month, and then the Iraqi army hit the city from the eastern side um, the next month. So by November, the Iraqi army had reached the, reached the city outskirts. And, you know, I, I embedded with Iraqi army units. I embedded with medics. I spent a lot of time in, in, you know, refugee groups where they were, like, collecting refugees and bringing them to camps. I, I spent a lot of time in camps talking to people about their experiences, you know, fleeing the war, getting bombed by U.S. aircrafts and, like, living under ISIS, like, all, all of that stuff, um, as well as, like, just the, the frontline, like, aspect of, of war. Um, and I tried to, you know, do the best I could to document as much as I could about what was happening through that fight. And, you know, people thought it was going to wrap up, um, People were like, oh, this will be done by January. And then, you know, January rolls around and be like, oh, it'll be done by April. And like, April runs around. And eventually it finished in, um, you know, mid-July of 2017. So it was nine months and it was a lot of fucking people killed. And, you know, the AP did an investigation afterwards. And um, the estimate was like between 9,000 and 11,000 people were killed in nine, uh, in nine months. Yeah. And that's that's a lot of civilians. Uh, there's a lot of Iraqi soldiers as well, but that was a lot of civilians. And yeah, I mean, not to mention the the four years under ISIS. So I think you know when a lot of people in the United States and Europe would have heard about ISIS was around the time that they had swept through Mosul because Mosul was a you know a very important Iraqi city. And the fact that these you know kind of jihadi Salafis like dead enders to use a Cheneyism like had just been able to overpower a large Iraqi city. Uh, and then occupy it for four years is astonishing. Well, and that's the thing is like, when did when did the West hear about ISIS? And what does the West care about ISIS? And the West doesn't, as far as like most people I talk to, like the West doesn't care about what happens to Iraqis. Like they don't care about what happens to Syrians. Like 9,000 Iraqis were killed trying to get Mosul back from ISIS. But like you talk to any American or like anybody in the UK and like they don't know that. They think about like, you know, what's ISIS able to do here? Like what's ISIS able to do in like America or the UK or like do they bomb a church? So, I mean, they don't think about what's happening here only in terms of like what could happen over in the States. Well, yeah, I mean, I think when, you know, you have an attack in the West, the the sentiment 
uh, it's like, oh, like they're they're here, like they're still dangerous. Like, do you realize the the lives that have been lost? You know, both in the fight to get ISIS back, but also like what ISIS did to people in Iraq and Syria. It's so much, so much graver. So many more lives have been lost, and not to compare like live numbers, but like if if you really cared about ISIS, like maybe you should like think about what they're doing to the local population and what their presence has done to the local population and what we've done in like our name of defeating terrorism to the local population, which is massive airstrikes on entire cities and wiping them off the map. Yeah, right. I mean, in that sense that it's um, it's kind of both things. Like it, it, it actually does make a difference to what happens back home, but there's also the kind of global case of like, these are people who have value and and oftentimes they are our allies you know so it's not even just like general like i love all humans value but like these are actually people who we are here to protect and are supposed to be in 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 a kind of deep relationship with and they've been just they've been suffering very deeply for things that we get real riled up about in the states but don't have any actual experience with and that you know it's eye opening to kind of come here and see like what the actual like what's actually happening with you know the people you meet who've had direct experience with ISIS which is pretty much just like the same as the boogeyman or the chupacabra in the United States you know it's like we talk about ISIS ISIS is not actually in the US but a very relevant fight is being fought here by people who are our allies and who you know are part of this country that could be very successful and you know, kind of a, a great model for the Middle East, even on our terms, even on American terms, you know, they could be a fantastic ally of ours if they didn't have to spend all this time just fighting and dying and, and living under uh, under the boot of um, this incredibly, like, just dark, dark cloud, you know, that had come across. So, I, I mean, when you when you started into... Mosul, there was, as you said, there was a combination of like dealing with ITPs and trying to tell their stories and, and getting people who were coming out of the city, but also being on the front lines in a, in a very real way. And like, how do you calculate risk for yourself? I don't have like an equation every time I go out. Um, I think it, you know, it varies story by story and, you know, assignment by assignment. But there's just like a really simple rule that I kind of put in place whenever. Uh, you know, I'm ever sharing a car with somebody or working with somebody else, which is, you know, if you don't feel safe, let me know and we're going to get out of here. And there's no like question about that. Like if somebody says, that's my line, that's the line for the group. And then we all leave. And I've respected that from other people. Other people have respected that from me. Um, and just those simple things of like, you know, this is, we're, we're working as a team here. Um, fixers, other journalists I'm with, um, writers, photographers, like we're all looking out for each other and we need to be to stay safe. And when one person says like, you know, that's it, that's it. That's it for the group. And that's kind of been like the line and you're able to gauge other things like through that work too. Like, you know, does he feel safe? Does she feel safe? Like, um, am I reading the situation to the best I can? And, you know, when you have more eyes, you have more ears and you have more feelings out there, like you're able to, I think, like hopefully um, calculate a little bit better. Um, so if one person says no, that's it. I think it's kind of worked out so far. <laughs> I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you, I think this, this cohort I, here and, and, you know, up to not quite including some of the Iraqi colleagues and friends of yours who have, you know, as all Iraqis, but, but you know, particularly have lost people in this fight and, and journalists like, like Ahmed who lost his brother, but, but generally in an era where we lost a lot of journalists and there's been something like 480 killed since 2003 in Iraq, it feels like, you know, this this group has, has stayed safe. There's certainly been people that have been injured. And, um, you know, I think in the, in the larger community, we've lost people, um, not my immediate friends, but uh, we've certainly lost, uh, lost some people that, that lived here. You know, a fixer, a fixer was killed as well. That danger and that risk is, is very present. And I, I think it's important to just keep, um, keep yourself aware of that as well. But man, I like I, I've made really fucking stupid decisions and, um, I've been I've been extremely lucky, and I've I think I was lucky to also meet up with people who have been doing this before me, and and knew what they were doing, and, and help pass that advice on. And I'm trying as as much as I can to also pass that advice on to other people that uh, that are going to keep doing this. Um, it, it's a small it, it's a small world, um, and we need to keep each other safe. We need to look out for each other, um, and people did that for me, and I'm going to keep doing it for other people. And I love this place, and I love my my friends and my family here. And just to be able to shoot and just step away from that madness in New York for a second, and just you know pull a camera back up to my face and just be myself for a little bit, um, and just just relax and you know let let life happen. Um, and I'm able to do that in a in a strange way, uh, strange way uh, here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and it's kind of why I'm here too. Is like I really realized that there was something very dissonant about what you were saying. It's like he's going there to like you know kind of decompress and understand things, which of course something hugely necessary for me too. I was kind of like there's that curiosity of like what is it that he's got here, you know? And and I feel like you know to kind of not to put too fine a point on it, but like the road trip we had today was like a really nice. I don't know. It just felt like a really nice example of like what that actually is. Just to backtrack for like a second. It's like if you've been like focusing on a on a thing for, you know, five years. So since like 2014, like I've been making trips here and then living here and then coming back and subsequent subsequent trips. It's like continuing a project is like super, super special. And like like it most people don't get to work on the same subject or the same subject matter for fucking five years. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's just like, it feels natural to come back and, and keep shooting this thing I've been shooting. And it's a lot of fun. Um, and I get to hang out with people I, I love. But yeah, so today we went up to a monastery in Shaklawa, uh, which is also nicknamed uh, Shakluja. Um because, because of, of the large uh, Fallujian regi- residents that have uh, moved up there, but the, yeah, the IDPs that have come up the mountains, and it's it's funny because Erbil is kind of a it's kind of an ugly city, you know. Yeah, Erbil is a dust bowl, man. It's it's uh, big suburbs, like high rise buildings that serve no purpose and are half empty, and lots of money, and uh, yeah, it's a weird place. Yeah, what's it? I don't know what the equivalent is. There's some like. Little like kind of maybe boomtown vibes. There's a there's a, a wannabe Dubai 
vibe here. Yeah. For sure. Right. Which is not something you or I are going to totally lock in on. But it's it's the capital. It's central. And what you had told me, which was actually true, is like, just get out of the city a little bit and you'll see what Kurdistan is actually like. They've had a lot of rain here, so the hills are super green. Uh, you're going up into the mountains and the, the towns and villages get smaller and smaller. And Shaklawa is kind of a slightly kind of a resort community for for people for whom the mountains speak very strongly, I think, you know. But there's just the small hike that we took was uh, to a monastery, which is fairly intense vertical, but you just go up into this. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was sweating. <laughs> well, me, me too. <laughs> um, but, you know, you go up into this crag in a mountain and bones of the hermit that had lived there uh, monastically until he just expired are kind of thrown behind a few rocks and you've got these... Uh, kind of grottos that have been uh, turned to charcoal by all the soot from candles that have been lit by Christians, but it's also a Muslim holy place. And then when we went up there, there's like a family that arrived, started feeding us things. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the the hospitable nature of, uh, of Iraqi culture is like not, it, it's like, shouldn't be underappreciated. Like, it's amazing. It's like, of course, they were going to give us sweets and cookies that they baked. It's like, obviously, it's just like, you, you more or more or less like have to do that um and yeah just started getting fed uh some chocolates and some some pastries and then um hung out while they uh while they prayed yeah I mean, for about 30 minutes yeah we were, we were like three dudes uh our uh your friend um Rizal. Rasul, who's like a you know a, a, a kurd from the mountains near uh the iranian border and and you and me and we showed up there and i think in the states people would be like I was hoping to have a peaceful like experience in nature or for these people, I was hoping to go and pray and just like be with the family and, and like, who are these people? You know, like why are they here in my day? No, that's not it. They started feeding us, like, as you said, uh, these homemade uh, pastries and then chocolates. And then, and then, you know, Rasul and I got trapped behind the prayer because um, <laughs> they did what we calculated as something like 3000 Hail Marys in Aramaic <laughs> up in the, in the, in the, you know, kind of, cave monastery up there well there's there's just like something really uh really beautiful about iraqi culture in general um which has always just like made me feel really really warm which is just like the hospitality and just gentleness with strangers just this family like walking up to meet us like in the states like no one ever would greet each other at a random like park situation where you're seeing something old like this family walked in with like you know, 15 people, and we're ugly-looking dudes, sweaty, hanging out, like, in, in a holy place. And immediately they were just like, hey, how are you doing? Like, let's hang out for a second. Like, like here's some here's some cookies. And that thing happens all the fucking time. Like, people are just really, really nice. Um, and just, like, not what Americans think of what Iraqis, like, normally do and, nor- like, w- what they're like. And, yeah. and it's it's always been just kind of a re- continual reminder for me of how, like, beautiful and special this country is. And, like, the like, urge to try to share a little bit of that with Americans. This is This is a tough job, you know, like, you're dealing with financial instability as a as a freelancer even even as a staffer you're dealing with you know personal risk but i'm super glad that you're here doing it and like trying to make it happen and in an effort to um to make that job harder i'm going to finish uh 
with you the rest of this 800 milliliters of $5 blackjack whiskey. We're not finishing that. We're definitely going to finish it. There's absolutely no way. We haven't eaten dinner, and I'm really hungry. So we're not we're not touching that. Uh, Black- I'm going to have a little bit more, but... Blackjack is going down tonight. Thank you, Jengis. Thanks, man. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff was our producer for this episode. Taffy Mokunyadze was our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle is our online editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Jengis Yar, the journalist you heard in this episode, is the producer on this and all of our upcoming Iraq episodes. Next Thursday on this feed, also available for the first time without a subscription, Basima Abdulrahman, business owner, engineer, Kurdish woman. Her remarkable story says a lot about what this country is trying to become. We will meet you there. <laughs>